This looks like a reasonably bright audience, so I want to ask you a question. Have you ever heard the phrase, March Madness? <laughs> yeah, isn't it fascinating? The last several days, dozens of basketball games. And what struck me, particularly because of the nature of the passage we're dealing with today, equal parts of exquisite joy on the part of some and profound discouragement on the part of others. And those of you that are Cavalier fans know what I mean. <laughs> now, full disclosure, I played for Michigan in the 1964 Final Four basketball team. This is my time of year. Yeah. But the disappointments of a lost basketball game don't compare to some of the deep disappointments and discouragements of our human condition. Think of a single person who's long desired to be married, but it never came. Think of a couple with a deep love of children who were never able to have any of their own. And to be personal, in my own case, I always dreamed of twin six-foot, eight-inch power forwards who could play for the University of Michigan. And the reality of it is I only have one son, and he has multiple disabilities. As we go through life, we all have why questions that seem to go unanswered for long periods of time. And that's what we're going to find in this text. Mary and Martha are going to have to deal with some why questions for a few days until it dawns on them what Jesus is all about. So I invite you to join me as we move into John 11, a very, very significant portion of Scripture, because John 11 sets Lent in motion, the period of time we're in right now. Because of what happens in John 11... Jesus is going to die. There will be a cross, and there will be an empty tomb. So join me in this passage. And the reason I raise this issue about discouragements and deep disappointments, because for a moment in time or for a period in your life or maybe even a season, have you ever felt as if God has let you down? how you're disappointed in what didn't happen or what did happen the wrong way you felt in your life. Because I want you to identify with Mary and Martha in this passage. It's one thing to be a distant observer of a passage, probably a passive observer. It's quite another to start to identify with the people in these passages and their reality of the human condition and so identify with them that we start to place ourselves in the passage, and that's where the Holy Spirit can meet us and touch us. Right? So let's do our best to walk into this passage this morning. A good question to ask to set the stage for any passage is, where are we? That's a geography question. And we were told in the text that Mary and Martha are in Bethany, right? A suburb, basically, of Jerusalem, two miles to the east. It's not obviously clear where Jesus is, but because we know this is a part of his Perean ministry, 
And because it's the mid-February time frame and because Jerusalem is 2,600 feet in the air and it gets snow in the wintertime occasion, that if you're an itinerant outdoor preacher, you want to be where it's warm. And in the Jordan Valley, which is 1,000 foot below sea level, it's warm in wintertime and that's where we find Jesus. I won't take you through the geography of it, but he's two days removed from walking from Bethany. In this culture, you walk 16 to 18 miles a day. No Greyhound buses, no trains, no horses, no donkeys, by and large, okay? You walk. Another good question to ask is what's happened before that might bear on this passage, and I would suggest at least two prior encounters would bear very much on this passage. One is when Jesus brought back to life the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus in Luke 8, the president of the Capernaum synagogue, and in Luke 7 when he brought back to life the only son of the widow of Nain. Those two events would have spread like wildfire throughout Judea and Samaria even, and Galilee. Why? Because many of the rabbis taught this is how we'll recognize Messiah when he comes. He will heal lepers and he will bring the dead back to life. Now, there's a problem here. There's a group called the aristocracy in Jerusalem who run Temple Incorporated, the biggest cash cow machine of antiquity, running eight businesses corruptly out of the temple. The board of directors, the Sadducean families, and some Jerusalem Pharisees are dead set against Messiah ever coming because the rabbis also taught that when Messiah comes, he will go straight to the temple, he will set up his throne, and he will reign politically and militarily, and if that ever happens, their gig running Temple Incorporated is over. They cannot allow that to happen. These are spiritually corrupt leaders. And so my intuition tells me that they've been explaining away those two bringing back the lives because they only happened on the first day. And in the Jewish worldview, when a person dies, their nephesh, which is the Hebrew word for soul, hovers over the body, waiting to re-enter. But by the beginning of the fourth day, the body is in such a rapid state of decomposition, you can't even recognize the person anymore. And its stench is so unbearable, the nephesh flees. And so they would explain away the two same day bringing back the lives, the life, by saying, well, the nephesh hadn't left yet. It was, was still in the three-day window. Our equivalent would be they were simply in a coma. Okay? I think that's a very real backdrop of what's going on. So as this passage unfolds, Lazarus is starting to deteriorate and Mary and Martha are getting increasingly concerned. Now, in this culture, social reciprocity permeates every fabric of it. And that basically means if I do something good for you, you're mandated to do something good for me. And since Jesus has already stayed on a couple, possibly three Passovers in Jerusalem with Mary and Martha and Bethany, their hospitality has earned them the right that Jesus owes them something. Social reciprocity. Of course we've got a problem. Of course you're going to intervene. That's just the way it works. Plus, you love Lazarus. And so there's an implied participant in this passage. It's a messenger. And so as Lazarus continues to deteriorate, it gets pretty severe. They get a messenger, 
hurry up and find Yeshua, Jesus. He's somewhere in the Jordan Valley, north of Jericho. And by the way, tell him when you see him, the one you love is sick and dying. Do you really think Jesus doesn't know he loves Lazarus? Why are they reminding him of that? Well, my own sense is a little bit of Jewish mamas here, manipulating. I have some of that in my own family background. What, you're not coming to Uncle George's birthday? Everyone's coming. Not what? You can't not, not be there. Social manipulation. Of course, we're above trying to manipulate God, aren't we, in our prayers? So the messenger goes off. It's, two, it's a two-day trip. Finds Jesus on the eastern side of the Jordan, probably an hour's walk north of Jericho. Lord, the one you love is sick and dying. Notice what the first thing Jesus does is he gives a promise. Whenever Jesus is going to really stretch our faith, he gives a promise. It's a pattern I'm seeing more and more. This is an illness that will not end in death, okay? I want you to practice that line, messenger. It's important that you give it exactly as I said it back to Mary and Martha, okay? Rehearse it for me. This is an illness that will not end in death. Don't forget it, okay? Get on your way. And then, in God's inspired word, we are told that Jesus waited two more days before he started to set his face towards Jerusalem and therefore Bethany. Now, if a good friend of yours was dying of cancer and was in hospice, and you got a call at 8 o'clock at night, uh, you better hurry up and get over here. Uh, they might not make it too much longer. Would you tarry for two more days before you moseyed over to hospice? I don't think so. So what's going on here? And Luke even goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha, because what he's about to do with a two-day delay would seem like he doesn't. Everything Jesus does is intentional. It's purposeful. It's part of a greater plan. And in that fifth verse, he says, this is an illness that will not end in death, but so that God can be glorified. Now, linguistically, in the Hebrew way of thinking, to glorify God means to accurately reveal and portray who he is, what he cares about, and how he does things. This two-day delay is intended to glorify God, to reveal and portray something about him that's terribly important for us to understand. And then it says that they're getting ready to leave and they don't arrive until the, Jesus doesn't arrive until the fourth day. All right, now I want you to freeze that thought. And I want to go over here now and get connected again with Mary and Martha. Lazarus deteriorating, 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 he dies. No problem. As long as Jesus gets here before the end of the first day, Lazarus will be fine. Lazarus dies. No problem as long as Jesus gets here before the end of the first day. Because in this culture, that's the two miracles that Jesus did. Jairus' daughter, the only son of the widow name, were same day bringing back the lives, and Jesus was on site, hands on. Okay? So that's the expectation of Mary and Martha. That's their paradigm. Yes, Jesus can heal. 
but only if he's on site and only if it's the same day and only if it's hands-on. Okay? And the sun sets on the first day and there's no Yeshua, no Jesus. So if you're Mary and Martha, how you doing? Discouraged? Disappointed? Perplexed? Maybe even angry? Feeling totally let down? Well, the second day comes. I won't take you to the arithmetic, but I think the messenger gets back there about 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the second day. And he burst on the scene full of joy and enthusiasm. Ladies, do I have great news. This is an illness that will not end in death. Really? Because he's already dead and in the grave, in the tomb. Are you sure that's what he said? Yeah, he made me memorize it. This is an illness that will not end in death. Well, I can tell you this, he died. Now, at the end of the second day, how are you feeling? Mary and Martha? Really let down? Really discouraged? You got a why question you'd like to ask? Well, it's the beginning of the third day. And if you allow me some creative instincts here, I think it's about 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the third day that either Mary or Martha, the light bulb goes on. I get it. Oh, how did we miss it? This is going to be a third day bringing back to life. Just before the nephews please. This will be even more spectacular than the one day bringing back to life of the other two. Oh, we're so special to him. He's going to just treat it in a very special way just because of us. Call CNN. Call the Jerusalem Post. Get Wolf Blitzer in here. you got to see this one. And the sun sets on the third day. And there's no Yeshua. Now all hope is gone. He was dead for three days, but now he's dead, dead. It's the fourth day. There is no hope. How are we doing, Mary and Martha? And then word comes to them in Bethany. Yeshua is at the well at Ein Shemesh. And Martha goes down and said, Lord, if you'd only been here, you wouldn't have died. They have their interchange, which we read. Switch Martha and Mary. Mary comes down and says exactly the same thing. It's almost as if they rehearsed it. Jesus gently chides them, gently. I promised he w- it will not end in death. Where's the tomb? And after the tears, Jesus goes to the tomb. Remove the stone. Lazarus, come forth. And out of the tomb, wrapped in the claws, comes Lazarus. Let me put this into a contemporary setting. Imagine that a very prominent city father here in Alexandria who's known and loved by many 
suddenly dies from a heart attack. And he lies in state for three days at City Hall. And as is mandated in his will, he's cremated on the beginning of the fourth day. And Jesus enters Alexandria and says, where's the crematorium? And he enters the crematorium and he said, now which chamber is your mayor? Number three, open it up. And Jesus peers into that chamber and sees a six foot, two inch little pile of ashes still slightly warm, maybe weighing two and a half pounds, and says to that strip of ashes, Mayor, arise. And out of those ashes comes your mayor. That's how stunning it is, okay? Now there is no question he's Messiah. The old three-day nephish argument just got blown to smithereens. Now everyone is going to believe in him. That's what the text says, the establishment is saying. If we don't do something now, everyone will follow him. And then Caiaphas says, better one person die than that we lose our gig in Temple Incorporated. The raising of Lazarus seals the deal for Jesus. He's going to die. And Lazarus is now a wanted man because he's exhibit A that Jesus is Messiah. And he's got to be on the run. And all during this, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are dead centered in God's will. Let that one sink in. Because being dead-centered in God's will does not mean life is convenient. You see, it's about his glory, not our easy life. He must increase, we must decrease, said John the Immerser. It's about his glory. Let's talk about some things that we've just learned about God. He certainly can surprise us, can he not? I think we've learned here we need to avoid having rigid expectations about what God's supposed to do and when he's supposed to do it in our lives. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And the way he's going to glorify himself in our lives may not be how we comprehend it yet. We've learned here that God's timing isn't necessarily our timing either, right? We are such a microwave culture people. I mean, get it done in two minutes on power 10. And God says, no, oftentimes my way is a slow bake. The focus is on God's glory, not our consequences. Get this. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are dead centered in God's will, and Lazarus is going to have to die again. And Mary and Martha are going to have to grieve again. The only person I know of in Scripture that dies twice dead-centered in God's will. We learn here also that God is going to test us, not for him to learn anything about the nature and character of our faith, but that so we can learn something about it at that point in our journey. You know, until you squeeze the, t- the toothpaste tube, you don't see the toothpaste coming out. We've learned here that God's tend to give us promises when he's going to stretch our faith. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth in this passage was a promise to Mary and Martha. They heard it, but they didn't believe it. But it was given. 
We learned here also that God's heart weeps over the effects and consequences of sin on the disruptedness of relationships in our lives. There's some things we've learned about the human condition as well. That it's very easy for us to have rigid expectations, right, and to cling to them rather than to release them, let them go, and live with a sense of expectancy, but not rigid expectations. A sense of expectancy that he can do far more abundantly than anything we might ever think or imagine, says the great Apostle Paul. And let's admit it, we hear his promises, but we don't always fully believe them, do we? And I love this insight right here. Remember that man in Mark, whose son was healed by Jesus, who said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. It's as if for the first several years in our our life, we we have a one-day faith, and we say, yes, Lord, I have a one-day faith, but you know I don't have a two-day faith. Help, Help my unbelief. And then after another 10 years, we can say, Lord, thank you. You know I have a two-day belief, but Lord, help me. You know I don't have a three-day belief. And then after 30 years, in God's grace, we can say, Lord, thank you. I have a three-day faith, but Lord, only you know in the depths of my soul, I still don't have a four-day faith. Help my unbelief. We also learn here that God's providence can certainly perplex us for a season, can it not? What in the world is going on? How do these dots add up in my life? I can't make sense of it. And when we learn something here about God's plan of rescue and restoration as well, it's centered in the person and power of Jesus Christ, who weeps over the things that we weep over as well. In God's resurrection power, death is simply the door through which we pass to get to eternity. We learned here that we have a role in his plan. That's to reveal his glory. And it may not always be convenient. And it may have some tough consequences at times. Even though we are dead centered in God's will, this is so hard for a narcissistic culture to get their arms around. And we can rest in this, that nothing is impossible with God. Absolutely nothing. Echoes of Mary in Luke 1. And you know, I know something about most of you sitting in the pews today. If I knew your life totally, I would realize you too are dealing with a fourth day faith issue. That's why this is such a powerful passage. We learned here that you can rest in God's providence. He has yet to ever make a mistake, and he is not about to start in your life and mine. Hallelujah. His timing is perfect. His wisdom is perfect. So some things to ponder in this Lenten season over the next two weeks. How big is your faith right now in what God can do in your life and in the lives of those you care about. Is it big enough? How can I live with more of a sense of openness and expectancy and avoid rigid expectations? Where do I need a four-day faith right now? 
And probably a caution here as well. Beware of interpreting what God is doing in real time. You're probably going to have to eat crow nine out of ten times. You're encouraged to share what you see through the rearview mirror of your life with what God has done because that's history. Share it. Early in my life, I was so um, emboldened that I was telling people what God was doing and I got tired of eating crow because his thoughts were bigger than my thoughts. His ways were bigger than my ways. Let me close with this thought from an old timer, Jeremiah Day. The longer I live, the more faith I have in providence and the less faith in my interpretation of his providence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful passage. Thank you for this encouraging passage. Thank you for this challenging passage. And thank you most of all for your Holy Spirit who not only penned each of these words, but stands ready to walk with us to touch us when we need to be touched, to encourage us when we need to be encouraged, to strengthen us when we need to be strengthened. Until that day when we stand before you and all of our why questions are answered and all of them are worthy of endless celebration that will fill eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.